0: Hello there, friends. Welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 342 of Sustainable Minimalists, a twice-weekly show about intentional and eco-minimalist living. On today's show, we're discussing quitting. Our society tends to have an anti-quit bias, doesn't it? No one ever wants to be called a quitter. We tend to want to believe, thanks to our rugged, individualist origins, that if we just work hard enough for long enough, if we just persevere, we will succeed. But my guest today argues that while animals in the wild know when and how to quit, humans not so much. And worse, our misguided reverence for perseverance, our white-knuckle grip on the idea that our destiny lies exclusively in our own two hands, often keeps us in the wrong places for longer than we should be there. This is one of those intentional living episodes that I'm bringing you today in which we take an idea that is conventionally regarded one way and we flip it. We turn it on its head. We take things and shake them up and turn it upside down. Today, we are questioning whether we can and should expand upon our understanding of quitting so as to live better. Today, I'm speaking with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Julia Keller on her upcoming book, quitting a life strategy. Now the book is not out yet, my friends. It doesn't come out until April, but if after listening to today's episode, you just love Julia as much as I do, and you need to read this book, you can pre-order it. Link is in the show notes. And before I bring you Julia, a quick note, a very important note. Tom Brady does come up in my conversation with Julia today. We use Tom as an example of someone who won't quit. But please know that that is because this episode was recorded a full 12 hours before Tom Brady announced his latest decision, yet again, to retire from football. Julia, I am really thrilled to talk to you today. How are you?
1: I'm very good, thank
0: you. A little cold. (laughs) Same. It comes with the winter territory, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes, yes. Today, we're talking about quitting, and I read in your new book that... You asked, I believe it was over 150 people, the same question. And so I'm going to ask you the question that you asked 150 some odd people, which is, what is the most significant thing you've ever quit? And do you regret it?
1: Well, see, that's a great question. Because um, like all of us, I think I have several things that I've quit. But more often than not, we more regret the things we don't quit that we should have than the things we did which just makes the point that became apparent to me with talking with all those people, is that quitting is something that really resonates with everybody Um, and has a terrible ring to it. To call somebody a quitter is just about the worst thing you can. But in my own case, I I talk a bit in the book about when I quit graduate school. My first foray into graduate school was an absolute disaster. I was way too young. I was away from home. I was 19 years old. I I had no business, no business uh, teaching courses and taking courses at a university in graduate school. But I tried it, and it was terrible. I didn't want to quit, but I had to. It was probably the the one of the worst moments of my life when I truly was on edge. You know, I felt that my my emotional equilibrium was was uh, was was really in danger at that point. Um, looking back on it, it was a good move. Although I'll, I'll say, and I think probably some of your listeners will agree, often when you look back on anything that you quit, it's a good move. I, I really, and all those people I interviewed, I really had a lot of regret. Most people, as I said, wish they had quit things sooner. And even when they had regret, it was in the, perhaps the way that they did it, not the fact that they did it because too often we stay in bad situations because we want to hang on, just hang on as hard as we can to a situation instead of letting it go with the expectation of something better.
0: Yeah. I found myself reminiscing about my big quits. Uh, in my 38 years so far as I was reading your book. And for me, I would say the most significant one was quitting my job, my career, teaching. And I don't regret it one bit. If I could go back, I wish I had the courage to have quit sooner because I knew in my gut and my soul, it wasn't for me, but I stuck with it because I was afraid. When we talk about quitting, you mentioned the anti-quit bias. Quitting is a really has a really um, negative connotation associated with it, and we're all about going against the grain here on this podcast. Quitting definitely goes against the grain, but why is quitting so looked down upon, in your opinion?
1: I think, um, and I and I I really think it harkens back to the middle of the nineteenth century when the whole self-help ethos began. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying to make yourself a better person, but what happens of the self-help idea, which again began, a man named Samuel Smiles wrote a book in 1859. Uh, He was a Scot, done a lot of different things. He wrote a book called Self-Help with illustrations of character and conduct and coined that phrase. His view was that we are all completely and totally in charge of our own lives. And of course, the self-help movement has to stand behind that, has to say, yes, it's all up to you. Everything is in your own hands. And if things don't work out, it's because you're a quitter, a whiner, a crybaby. But the problem with that is it fails to recognize that very often things happen to us that we can't plan on, we didn't cause, we can't, people get sick, a fire or a flood or a natural catastrophe destroys something you may have built your entire, spent your entire life building. So what the self-help ethos fails to recognize is the things that just happen to us. It puts us in charge of our own lives. And Worse than that, I think, and where, the, where quitting really becomes kind of um, a really treacherous way to, to think about the world, is that it makes us less tolerant of other people who have had difficulties in their life. We become judgmental scolds. It's like, well, look what happened to you. Well, of course, you quit. I mean, the worst people you can think of are the people who are very judgmental about other people and things that have not worked out for them. So I guess that, that's part of my reason for wanting to explore quitting is not only what it does to the individual to have this idea that, nope, you must hang in there at all costs. And if you if you work hard, you'll win. If you quit, if you don't persevere, you'll lose. Well, would that life were that simple? It isn't. Life is complex. It's paradoxical. Things happen all the time that we can't control. And it just would make us a little more tolerant, I think, to look upon quitting as a life strategy instead of as a surrender or a capitulation.
0: Hmm. In your book, you really drilled down the point that quitting serves a purpose. It shakes things up. It wakes us up so that we can move forward. You also say, though, that quitting is an act of love. How is quitting an act of love? Yeah,
1: you know that was something I came up with after I'd written the book and done all the interviews and talked to neuroscientists about what happens in our brains when we choose one path over another. And I started thinking, trying to to just kind of be quiet for a moment amidst all the research, kind of push that aside and think about it. And I thought, it's an act of love because it's an act of generosity. It's an act of love towards yourself. It's saying, I want to believe in a better place than where I am now. When you hang on to a bad situation, hang on to something that just isn't working out, you're not really using all of your gifts and talents to their full potential. But if you can get to that place where you say, I love myself enough to take this risk, and take this leap. And of course, the greatest the greatest risks are really not risks at all. I mean, that's where we need to be. And the, the greatest risk is not to take one. Um, so I guess that's how I meant it, is that it is, it's an act of generosity towards yourself and toward the world. You're saying, I deserve better. And I know the world wants to give me better if I just get out of the way and give it the chance.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's an act of self-love. It's a way of showing, not just saying or telling yourself that you trust yourself, but really putting that trust in your ability to pivot to the test in real time. And in your book, I loved the comparison between Honeybees and Simone Biles, of course, the U.S. gold medal, where multiple gold medal wearing gymnast. You say that Honeybees and Simone Biles both know when to strategically quit. I'm hoping that you'll be willing to talk us through those two examples and also tell my listeners, how do we know, like how, what happens inside us? How do we know when it's time to strategically quit something?
1: Right. Yes. Actually, the Simone Biles example came to me um, in my, I, I talked to a lot of scientists too, because I thought, how do the other animals on this planet, how do they deal with quitting? I mean, animals quit all the time. They have to, it's a survival strategy. If you're a finch on Galapagos Island and your only food is a seed that's inside of a very hard plant called a caltrop, has a very thorny hide on the outside. If that finch spends too long trying to get a seed out of a particular plant that has a hard hide, he will perish. I mean, they live on a very narrow margin of existence. So at some point, the finch has to decide, you know what? I'm moving on. This one is not working out. So we know that animals quit all the time. If a lion is chasing prey, becomes too innervated, that lion himself will become prey all animals have to live on this very constant balance of energy expenditure as they're trying to get food in order to survive. Um, The Simone Biles example came to me. I I interviewed a wonderful entomologist, Justin Schmidt, probably the premier entomologist in the country. He deals with stinging insects. He's written a book called The Sting of the Wild, which is quite wonderful. And he pointed out that honeybees sting when they're going to protect their nest. We we all know that they protect the hive. Only the females sting. And when they sting, they die. They're eviscerated. So that honeybee has to make sure that if they're going to sting, it has to be for a good purpose. You think that, well, they always sting. Anybody comes to the nest, they're going to sting a, a potential predator. Turns out not. This is what Dr. Schmidt's research showed. The honeybee makes a calculation. When a predator approaches, the honeybee decides two things very quickly. Decides, is the predator really a threat? And number two, is the hive fertile enough to warrant the sacrifice of a life? And in a, in a way, that's why I make the analogy to Simone Biles. To me, here she is, one of the greatest athletes in the world. And she knows she's just not right. She's not feeling right. And her sport is one, of course, with the risk of catastrophic injury or death is always there. I mean, an enormously difficult sport, as we all know. So this is this is what she has to do. She has to make this calculation. Is this worth the cost of my life? Just like a honeybee does when protecting the nest. And to me, that's why... Part of the genius of Simone Biles is to be able to make that calculation and indeed to take a lot of the the guff that she got from people. I mean, most of us, I think in our circles, people were like, hey, you go, girl. This is great. You know, we recognize that this was an act of heroism, really. But there were people that said, no, no, no. You let down the country. You let down your team. What's the matter with you? You quitter." Heard the word quitter a lot. And actually, it's, it's the opposite. Like a honeybee, like animals in the wild, Simone Biles made this calculation so that she could continue her sport and continue her life. It was not worth the risk of her injury or death in order to do this at that moment. So she quit and it was an act of heroism.
0: I don't know hardly anything about football. However, I live in New England and everybody always talks about Tom Brady, everything. There's lots of football lovers around wondering why he hasn't strategically quit why he hasn't retired perhaps and so your example of one of the greatest athletes in the world Simone Biles weighing the danger versus what's at stake uh, really hits home for me as I you know on a Tuesday evening speaking with you think about Tom Brady who's really staying in the game for as long as possible
1: And making up his mind uh, right now, for first, let me just say, I'm shocked you're not a football fan because I live and breathe football. I absolutely adore it. So here I thought you and I, things were going so well. Now you tell me that. Um, But no, that's a great example. There's the Simone Biles example who says, hey, here's what I'm going to do. Then there's Tom Brady. I have to tell you, as much of a football fan as I am and as much as I love the idea that someone can play at that high of a level at his age and, and with some physical deterioration, which of course there is, I hold my breath every time I watch the man play because every play could be the last one. Catastrophic energy is lurking right around the corner. It's difficult for me to watch him play now, I have, to, I have to admit. I do think that your point is well taken. We see the Simone Biles example, then the Tom Brady example. Who's right? And the answer is, it depends on whether you're Simone or you're Tom. It is absolutely an individual decision. And that's why I hope we can get beyond the word quitter as a pejorative. And then we wouldn't worry so much about what Dane people call us. I mean, as kids, we all hate to be called a quitter. And if we could remove the sting from that word, I think we might go a little bit longer down the road toward letting people be who they are, make their own decisions and not sit in judgment of other people and assume that they quit because they're lazy or cowardly.
0: Well, Tom Brady, if you're listening, if you want to send me a little hate email, I'm I'm here for it. I don't like getting hate emails, but Tom Brady, you can send it to me. That would be Okay. <laughs> Julia, we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, I want to dig deep into the how. Quitting is not simple. So how do we do it? We're going to get there after a quick word from our sponsor. Coast of Maine believes in nurturing relationships with local retailers, so next time you're at your local retailer, look for Coast of Maine products. Get growing. Visit coastofmaine.com to find a local retailer near you, coastofmaine.com. If you've been paying attention, you've likely heard something about gut health and why zoning in on your gut health is so darn important And we're back. Today, we are discussing quitting with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Julia Keller. She has written a new book. It's amazing. And it is called, it has a very long title, listener. So stay with me. (laughs) Quitting, a life strategy, the myth of perseverance and how the new science of giving up can set you free. What a title. We're moving into the part of the conversation where I want to talk about the how. It's not easy to quit our jobs or leave a relationship or drop out of grad school or whatever the thing is, big or small, that we're thinking about quitting. How exactly do you suggest, once we decide we're going to do it, how do we quit high stakes situations? You know,
1: I uh, I have a chapter in the book, which I call quasi quitting, which means that quitting doesn't have to be an either or. I say it's not, not like a light switch. It's more like a reset dial. I use some historical examples like um, but Henry James. He decided he wanted to be a playwright instead of writing novels. Well, it was a disaster. His play, he was booed off the stage. People threw things. Poor Henry James had to endure people really yelling at him and calling him, calling him nasty names. But he didn't stop writing. He just stopped writing plays. He went back to novels. It's an example of a quasi quit. Um, Tiger Woods I used another example of someone. He didn't stop playing golf. But because he was somewhat limited after having that horrific car accident, he changed his expectation that he always had to finish number one. Someone asked him in the, in the uh, match he was in after his terrible car accident, it said, is just finishing now uh, an achievement for you? And he said, yes. And that's an amazing thing for a man who had never accepted, a magnificent athlete who had never accepted anything less than a first place finish as, as being something he even cared about at all but he did because the circumstances had changed. So the thing I would say to people is you make that decision, but it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can change your circumstances. You can pause and you can pivot. So stop, think about where you are, where you want to be, make a plan, make a strategy. That it, but, but again, not an all or nothing, either or thing. I, I come from a very all or nothing family. I mean, we're famous for like great renunciations. Like I shall never return to another Thanksgiving, you know, that <laughs> sort of thing. Um, and then we, 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 seed to try to, try to you know, storm out the door and it never works, usually back within about 10 minutes and people apologize and on it goes, like every family. <laughs> um, so that's the kind of example of quitting we don't want to do, which is something in a, in a great fury or in a great gust of emotion. To me, the really strategic quitting and what I call precision quitting is when you are smart about it and canny about it and you think about what comes next. I interview a physician um, that I talk about in the book. And he, he deals specifically with physicians at Northwestern University who, are trying, who want to quit medicine. During the pandemic, as we know, a lot of healthcare workers so overburdened, so overstressed. That's it. They were done. They wanted to you know take off their stethoscopes and throw them in the trash. And his job specifically was to meet with those physicians. And he told me that what he would often do is say, quit to what? What's going to lie beyond this quitting moment? You're going to feel good when you quit. You're going to march out this door and say, that's it. I won't take this anymore. Um, but what, what about what after? And he said, when you can answer the question, quit to what, what lies next, then maybe you're ready. Until then, he would say to them, just pause and maybe pivot, maybe change your circumstances, your work circumstances, see if you can change your hour. see if something can change to make it a little more palatable. So to get away from the all or nothing thinking and the kind of emotion driven act, which sometimes works out, sometimes doesn't. It's always very dramatic, always very you know, when you look back upon it, it's, it's a fun story to tell, but it's not fun to live through.
0: Right. Yeah. I think what I hear you saying there is you can quit in a dumpster fire situation, right? Like you can, <laughs> you can burn up <laughs> your workplace or whatever it is as you quit, or you can leave emotion out of it. And that's where the strategic part of strategically quitting comes into play. How does strategic quitting differ from quiet quitting, though? I see, oh my gosh, the newspapers love to write about quiet quitting these days. And listeners, if you don't know what quiet quitting is, it's this new pandemic phenomenon in which you know you do the minimum necessary at your job. You put in no extra time, no extra effort, definitely no extra enthusiasm than you absolutely have to do to collect your paycheck. What do you say to quiet quitters and where does that fall into this conversation?
1: You know, I despise the notion of quiet quitting. Absolutely despise it. It's completely the opposite of what, uh, you know, what I was talking about and completely the opposite of quasi quitting. To me, quiet quitting is just, it's basically thievery. You're basically not working and you still take a paycheck. It, 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 and you're, you're so right. It did become a thing, although it did seem to quiet down a bit, if you will. To me, it's not even a legitimate response to a bad situation. Either have the courage to change the situation. Ask to change it. You know, if if you have if it's that bad, try to change it first. But quiet quitting, to me, as I said, is just kind of like not working at all and just kind of being a bum and putting your feet up on your desk and hoping nobody notices. And it just doesn't seem very admirable to me. Quitting does take a lot of courage. Giving up on something and moving to something else takes courage. And also, as we were mentioning earlier, an optimism. There's a kind of a golden, radiant optimism that's at the heart of great changes we make in our life that we make throughout our lives, depending on our age or what situation we're in. It's a great optimism. I'm not a naturally optimistic person at all, but in, in writing this book and in talking to so many, many people, dozens of people about times when they made great changes in their life, I found it quite inspiring. We really can do it. Just ordinary people. I mean, I'm not Simone Biles. I'm not Tom Brady, Lord knows, but I'm able to make some strategic pivots in my life and try to make things a little bit better. And I'm sure there are many more that lie ahead. I mean, I hope we all have a lifetime of quitting.
0: I'm thinking about a listener who's listening to our conversation right now, and they're saying to themselves, huh, yeah, easy for them to say, I can't just quit my job or I can't just divorce my partner uh, because, hello, finances. And I think I'm not even going to ask you that question because I know what your answer would be. Your answer would be to quasi quit, to come up with a plan and don't you know, go out in a in a burst of flames. I think that's going to, what you would say and correct me if I'm wrong, but what do you say to the other listeners who are listening and they're nodding their heads and they're on board and we're speaking to their souls. They're thinking about quitting something, but they're paralyzed by the worry that they're going to regret that quitting down the road.
1: You know, that's a great question. I certainly have been in very difficult situations that I have stayed in too long, as have we all and that's one of the great things that I that I took away from all the conversations that I had everybody is afraid everybody at all times are, we're all afraid and once I kind of realized that even people that, that that seemed to have it all together deep inside when they would kind of like care to reveal these moments and how difficult it was um, I, I, I talked to a woman um, who'd been a nurse had trained to be a nurse, spent all this money her family spent all First day on the job, she realizes this is absolutely not right for me. I cannot do this for the next 40, 50 years, whatever working life is now. And she said, I I can't do it. But how do I tell people? She said, I was ashamed to tell people. I was afraid. She somehow found the courage to do it. I mean, there are several steps she took along the way. I think it really becomes a matter of of life and death. You know, what kind of life you're going to have of not wanting to kind of just go through the motions. And I certainly understand the financial constraints that people have. But again, I can only give you the evidence of the people that I spoke with, and that is, the vast preponderance of people did not regret quitting something. They regretted not quitting it sooner, not taking that step when they should have. Sometimes we wait until things are really bad before we take another step. And I should emphasize too that that it's not just quitting things like jobs, and it's also ways of thinking. You know, I know for me, um, I've always been kind of a controlling person. Like with my family, I'm a little bit. Um, Oh, I guess bossy is a word I hear a lot, but I've had to, that's something I've had to quit or try to quit. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a habit that's very hard to break. Tell I always know better, of course, don't we all, but try to let people live their lives the way that they see fit. Even though I know they're heading toward a complete mistake, but just a step back. I mean, parents face this all the time, of course, is to let people make their own mistakes. And that's what I guess I would say. If, you know, we know in science, what we do is we, we gather a lot of data. And we look at that data and we, we extrapolate from the data what's, what's the best course ahead. And I can tell you that everybody I spoke with had a difficult time, felt that fear, worked through the fear, and then it was okay. That we make these changes all the time and it's not making the change that ends up being the real blow, not so much making it. And it will be difficult for a while and you will make the wrong decisions. I mentioned earlier that, that you know life is unfair, life is uncertain you will make the wrong decisions. There are things that I've quit that I, that I probably shouldn't have. Um, and all we can do is just try to learn from those mistakes and go forward. But those mistakes of commission, as opposed to the ones of omission, seems to me to have a kind of an energy behind them and a light and a radiance. And they kind of propel us forward because we all deserve uh, a better life and collectively a better world.
0: You had a sentence in your book that I copied down because it really just spoke to me. And your words were, quote, our lives can be transformed in positive ways when we quit because we can swap one destiny for another. So to anybody listening who's thinking, oh, I'm worried I'll regret it. Remember, uh, you can transform your life for the better. You can swap one destiny for another. I just find that to be such a powerful way of Framing this conversation, I want to uh, give a nod to the parents listening. I have a lot of parents who listen to this show. And, you know, I as a parent myself, I struggle with wanting my daughters to stick with something, whatever the thing is, and not quit prematurely. Um, You you want them to get really good at something. You want them to get over the hump before they decide it's not for them, or or at least I do. That's what I struggle with a lot of times. What do you say to the parents listening who want to best support their children when their children want to quit something? I'm thinking maybe a sport or an instrument or an extracurricular. What do you say to them?
1: You know, um, I have an entire chapter on that for that very reason, because it's such a huge issue. I tell it from both sides, the parents who are trying to decide, okay, so my kid wants to wants to quit the basketball team. Is that okay? Um, when do you push? I interviewed several teachers too. When do you push students and tell them you can work harder or when do you lay off and say they they they've kind of got it here, and this is not this is not really working out for them they maybe they need to be in another level of this, and I also talked to some kids some some who have wanted to quit things and who went to their parents. And who were afraid of had had a f- tremendous guilt when they go to parents and say, "I want to quit this, but I was really afraid that my mom was going to be mad at me. I wanted to quit gymnastics. Would that be okay?" So in answer to your question it's a very it's a very nuanced thing. I interviewed several parents who who talked about that that they use their own quitting as kind of a as a as a model to use it to start a conversation with their children and to say. Are you quitting because, to use your example, Stephanie, is it's hard. It's just got a little too hard. And you kind of wanted to hang out with your friends instead of going to practice. Okay, that's not an okay quitting. But do you want to quit because there's some other issue involved? A friend of mine had a, a son was playing football and he really didn't like it. He didn't like the physicality of it. He was um, physically robust. He didn't like hurting other kids. And he said to his mom, I just don't like hurting people anymore. And she said, got it. Okay, that's, that's it. It's the reason you're quitting. And it's kind, of, it's kind of digging down deep into the reasons and pulling back the layers and saying, again, am I just not feeling it today? Uh, rather, I'd rather uh, you know play a, play a video game, or is there something deeper here? And parents can find that out through conversation, which is always a good thing, of course. So that's why I devoted a lot of space in the book to that very question. What do you do when, when people come to you asking for advice? A child, maybe a best friend, comes and says, I don't know. I just, I just Things just start working out. Should I leave this marriage, this job, this church? Uh, what should I do next? Um, it's such a, it's a very complex thing. Quitting is not this simple either or, and that's what, what I hope that people will take away from the book. Um, and we're just, as you know, in the book, I also discuss the, the neuroscience of quitting. What actually happens in the brain when you choose one path or another? We know the specific neurons and where they are in the brain when you change your behavior. It, it's a, It's a brain issue. And the more times you quit, the more activity you you create in your brain. And a healthy brain is a brain that's constantly working. So I call quitting aerobics for your brain.
0: I love that. <laughs> yeah, we do aerobics for our bodies. Why not for our brain as well? I just want to go back to your points to the parents that you just made and say that I think a big step also for parents when you have a child who's thinking about quitting something is to take yourself and your own childhood and your own hopes and dreams or your own lost hopes and dreams out of the equation. I know for me, I was a really, for lack of a better word, lazy kid, <laughs> like like teenager. I didn't do extracurriculars. I would, I much rather, I much preferred to like go home and <laughs> sit on the couch. Like, and I look back at my own childhood and say to myself, "Well, why didn't I like stick with anything? What could I be now if I had tried harder?" But I can't change my own adolescence. There's no point in going backwards. And so I feel as though when my oldest daughter says she wants to quit a sport, my first instinct is always to tell her to stick with it because of my feelings as though I didn't apply myself. And so just taking yourself out of it and remembering it's not about me, the parent. It's about Ani, my daughter. So that's just something like a reminder. We all we all know that, but it's important to remind ourselves because in practice, that can be really hard. Parenting, just like quitting, is very hard. Julia, I want to wrap up. I want to ask you about your book. But before we do that, I have a very important question that has nothing to do with quitting. I have you here. So I'm just going to ask you, what is it like to win the Pulitzer Prize?
1: Oh, you know, it truly is a career changing honor. You know, it's a it's a, something you never expect. You you work in journalism and you you hear this legend of these big prizes. But um, but it was wonderful. Um, it said it really was a was a great experience. It was a long series I'd worked on with no expectation of of any sort of prize like this. I don't know. I mean, maybe some people do start out with something and think this is it. This is my but not at all. I mean, I just I was working on a story. It was multiple interviews over many months and I really had no idea. Um, that it was even in the offing. But it was a great honor. It does indeed
0: change your life. And you are, you know, the lessons in your book personified, right? From grad school dropout, (laughs) first time to Pulitzer (laughs) Prize winning journalist. I mean, (laughs) amazing. There you go. I I was going to tell you one more quick story of a student. When you mentioned you're talking about your daughter, I think it's
1: so true. One of the teachers I interviewed told a great story about a student she had in class and he wanted to quit. He hated school, hated it. And she said, his parents were upset. They wanted him to be a student. They were teachers. They believed in education. So she said, I told them, relax. I know Todd. I've watched him. I know his learning style. He's going to be fine. And she said, but they were just heartbroken. He dropped out of school. And she said, now he designs computer websites and video games. She said, it's worked out magnificently for him. I knew it would, but they couldn't see it because it was not their way of viewing the world. And she said, Being a great student was important to them, but it wasn't important to Todd. And I love that story because that was a teacher that did, just as you're saying, took herself and the parents' expectations out of it and said, he's going to be okay. I just love that
0: story. Hmm. So tell us about your new book, Quitting a Life Strategy. When does it come out? Where can we find it? What else is in it that we didn't touch on today? Tell me all the things.
1: You know, it comes out April 18th, but of course um, you can pre-order on the Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any of those places. Um, it, I, I hope that what, what people do when they read it is to realize it's not so much, I don't think of it as traditional self-help book. In fact, I critique self-help books. I don't, some of them I like, okay. Some of them I don't like. My opinion doesn't matter. But I just think that what we need to remember is everybody has to do it in their own way and to su- suggest that we're in control of our own lives is simply wrong. And once we let go of that, let go of trying to control other people. Let go of thinking we should always stay exactly where we are and never quit. You know, once you get into one rut, but let go of all of that. Life can be so much lighter uh, and more joyful. A friend of mine has a saying that says, um, be careful of the rut you choose. You're going to be in it a long time. Um, but uh, as I said, I hope people will read it. I'd love to hear from people. The uh, On the on the back of the book is the, uh, the uh, website. But I just think it... Um, to me, it dovetails so nicely with what you try to do here on your show, which is you suggest to people, there are better ways of being. Don't have to, but maybe just think about it. Here's another way of looking at something. And you can let go of the things that are burdening you. Just kind of let them go, like letting go of the string of a balloon. Watch it, Watch it float away and craft a new life. And we have the chance to do that every single day.
0: Yes. And I just want to say, I I did mention to you offline before we started recording, but Julia, I absolutely loved your book. There's nothing currently in my life that I'm thinking about quitting, but still so many little nuggets of wisdom that I've tucked away in my brain for the future, uh, little seeds that will sprout (laughs) as I continue on this confounding journey that is life. So thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Thank you for writing this book I so enjoyed talking to you. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Listeners, that's a wrap, my friends. Show notes are at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 342. I have an eco tip for you today, and it does come again from yours truly. Uh, By the way, thank you to all of you who have sent me eco tips in the last few days. I'm going to add them into upcoming episodes. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you who have left reviews. Oh my gosh, I've been so thrilled every morning waking up and seeing new reviews for the podcast. So thank you so much for supporting the show and me and this endeavor by leaving a review. So my eco tip today is a nod to what we discussed in episode 336, which was a Defend the Trend episode on algae. My guest, Corinna Belize, she is an algae evangelist, self-named algae evangelist. And after we recorded that episode, first of all, if you missed it, go back, take a listen. But Corinna said, why don't I send you some of Orlo Nutrition's, that's her employer's, algae-based supplements for omega-3s. And I thought to myself, okay, yeah, I'll try it. I'll try anything once. And so I've been taking Orlo's algae-based supplements and they're wonderful. No burpy fish oil taste. I can confidently say goodbye to my fish oil because when I say bye to fish oil, I'm also saying goodbye to my contribution to the overfishing problem. Algae-based supplements, I'll be honest, I was thinking to myself, I don't wanna eat algae. I don't I don't need to be healthy that bad. But they taste completely normal. It's as easy as taking a multivitamin. Just one and done every morning. And I go on with my day. I feel confident and proud of myself, frankly, for giving myself the omega-3s I need from a plant, not an animal. So thank you again to Corinna and Oralo Nutrition. Listeners, I will see you on Thursday where we are finally, I know I teased this a couple days ago, but we're finally doing it. We are discussing the ways in which social media influences not only our perception of ourselves, of our core, but also how social media impacts our purchasing. We'll get there on Thursday, and I'll see you then. Take care.
1: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator